All right. So, introduction to the book of Philippians before we get into it. Um, we know that it's one of the epistles Paul the Apostle wrote. Um, it is an ancient city in modern Greece, um, the city of Philippi. We know he's writing to the believers in Philippi, the church over there. And um, it was an ancient city in modern Greece today. Um, it was one of the capital cities of the time. Um, it was one of the largest strategic cities of Europe. Um, we know that the, during this time, the Roman Empire ruled. Um, they were the ruling empire of the world at the time. And they extended in a big area in Europe. And, and we know that Philippi was under Roman rule. So it was on one of the main highways from Asia to Rome. It's a Roman colony, as I mentioned. Citizens had Italian right as there were Italians there and Greeks. Um, so there were mostly Gentile, hardly any Jews there. Um, it was a miniature replica of Rome, the way they dressed, the way they talked, the food. Um, it was a military city free from imperial taxes. And it had a large jail and a huge medical center. Um, there was no synagogue in Philippi. As I mentioned, um, there was hardly any Jews. And um, there was no Old Testament quotations in the book of Philippians. Um, if you know Paul and even Peter and um, actually many of the books in the New Testament, there's a lot of references to the Old Testament. I didn't know this till way later. And you see that they, because they were Jews, they knew the Old Testament. And there's a lot of quotations um, in the New Testament that they're referring back to the Old Testament. So a lot of people that might say or think that the Old Testament is irrelevant for today we wouldn't have a big portion of the New Testament if, if that was the case, because um, a lot of the New Testament has to do with the Old. Yes, we're in the New Covenant, but um, there were a lot of references um, to the Old Testament. So it's interesting that Philippians doesn't have any Old Testament quotations, so maybe because they weren't Jews. Um, Acts 16, um, you guys, um, we're not going to put the scriptures up there because I'm going to go really quick, but if, if you can, you could turn to Acts 16. Um, I'm just going to go through it really quick. Not the whole chapter, but just quick references throughout the whole chapter. Um, Philippians, we know that in Acts, we're going to see uh, the city of Philippi, one of Paul's missionary journeys. We're going to see he had a lot of quote-unquote adventures, I guess you could say, <laughs> um, good and bad, um, but all for the Lord, so the advancement of the gospel. Um so you're going to recall these stories as I'm referring back to them, and it's all going to come together when you think of Philippians now, because he's writing to the people that live there, so, and the church there. So Acts 16, Paul started the church at Philippi on his second missionary journey. That was around 50 to 52 AD. It was the first church in Europe, so first Christian church since uh, Christ um, died and rose again. So that was the early church. They were actually the first church in Europe, so that was pretty awesome, because we know it started in, in Jerusalem. Um, so Acts 16, 6 through 7, the Holy Spirit stopped them from preaching in Asia Minor and Bithynia. So I don't know if you guys remember that story in Acts 16, 8 through 10. Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia, if you guys remember that story. Uh, that was in referring to northern Greece. So pleading for help. He was probably dressed like a Philippian. So it's funny because I always pictured... Um, probably because I've been on missions trips in the Amazon, there was a, our main little village that was like our headquarters, it was called Macedonia. So I know it was, they probably named it after this city in the Bible, but every time I hear Macedonia, I think like people, tribes in the Amazon, and I think, oh, maybe it's a man on the island calling Paul for help because we know he got bit through, bit with a, bit from a snake, um, as there were shipwrecked on the island, so it just, to me, that's what I always pictured, but he was probably dressed like a Philippian since it was referring to that area in northern Greece. Um, Acts 16, 10 through 12, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Luke. Paul refers to, or actually Luke is writing the book of Acts. He says we, so he's referring to them. Um, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke go to the colony of Philippi, the foremost city in Macedonia. So this is kind of setting the stage of when they first encounter Philippi. Acts 16, 13, Paul's team goes to the riverside on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, to talk to the women there. They met with the women because there were not enough Jewish men for a synagogue. Um, it's interesting because in any city or town, if there was no synagogue there, the Jewish people would meet on the, 
side of the river. That's kind of was like their church gathering. They would gather there because you, the law was that you needed two men, ten Jewish men, to um, establish a synagogue. So if there was not enough Jewish men in that town or that city, then they, would, they didn't have anywhere else to meet, but they would meet by the riverside. So since Paul and his team go and they don't see a synagogue, they're like, well, let's go see where these Jews are at, where they're meeting at, so they could start something. And it's interesting because there is a lot of women, so it was women, so that makes sense why they couldn't start a synagogue because there's not enough men, which is sadly always the case. Um, it's not just me. A lot of pastors say it that sadly there's just always more women and then serving in the churches or just at the churches. Um, so it's pretty cool. I like this story. I wish you could do a, maybe a character story later on Lydia. So this is where he meets Lydia, and we're going to get into her. So she played a big part in um, the early church and uh, Paul's journey. So I think it's really cool that um, women played a big role in the Bible, even though, you know, there is an order um, behind the scenes. Even Jesus had a lot of women that supported him, followed him. Maybe they couldn't, um, you know, be leaders or be they weren't men, but they supported financially, and that actually helped their ministry more, and they prayed, and, you know, they helped get it started. They, they had a role, a big role in the church. So as they found them on the side of the river, Acts 16, 14 through 15, Lydia and her family are saved. She invites Paul's team to stay at her house. The church at Philippi met in Lydia's large house. Um, she actually is said in the Bible to be a seller of purple, so that actually was like a really good biz business. Um, that was more for like the rich people or kings. There was a special dye that not many people had and purple signifies royalty. So when they would have the robes, um, it would often be purple. So she was actually a, a businesswoman and she was pretty rich. So Chuck Smith said, Lydia's conversion was the beginning of the church in Europe. The seed planted was small, but it fell on fertile soil in the hearts of Lydia and her family. And from there it spread to others in Philippi. But it all started with a very small beginning, and that's so often how it goes. We tend to want instant success, but God tells us in Zechariah 4.10 that we are not to despise the day of small things. Just as you don't plant a seed one day and look for an ear of corn the next, you can't expect instant growth in people. We sow the seed, and God causes the growth. So it's encouraging also just the work here in City Terrace. We're small, but I know we're mighty, and, and we've done a lot so far in just reaching people and just blessing people. And... Our prayers, and even last month in the women's study, I'm just still so amazed. <laughs> There's a lot of spiritual warfare that happened. And even now, um, I'm probably going to be talking about her a lot. Um, Angela's daughter, she's going through like a really intense trial right now. And just this whole study just made me think of her and exactly what she's going through. And, and when she speaks, it's like everything in this epistle and the purpose of it. And... Um, yeah, so we know that God did something really big because we actually prayed a lot and we um, wrote down a prayer list, which reminds me, if some of you guys still haven't gotten it, I have it so I could send it to you, um, of just all the prayers. Everybody started raising their hand, praying for my family and my friends, and it was just an awesome work. So we know even though we're small, we know we get more done than maybe a church who, as we're studying in Revelation, maybe it's a, a cold church, you know, that they're not really doing much anymore or they don't have that fire anymore and they're not praying for others. But, um, yeah, so it's pretty cool. It's pretty um, encouraging. And um, it reminds me of what I tell the kids in the children's ministry. Um, we did, uh, we planted seeds, and I, was, and I taught them, too. It's like patience. Throughout the Bible, it says, you know, just have patience like the farmer. And you're not going to see it right away, but it takes time, even like prayer. So maybe if people, they don't lose faith or hope, and maybe their prayers aren't coming to pass. But, um, yeah, so that, I like that, that he said that. But um, Acts 16, 16, so as we continue in that chapter about Acts and the backstory of uh, Philippi, um, we read about the girl that was possessed. Uh, she was possessed with a spirit of divination, which also, also means a python spirit, like a snake. Uh, Chuck Smith said, in Greek, the, wor the word used for divination is from the root word python. In the city of Delphi in Greece, there was a prophetic center called the Oracle at Delphi. According to Greek mythology, Apollo had killed a great snake called Python at that site. The snake's spirit was said to have remained at that spot and would inhabit the prophets and prophetesses there. People would come to the Oracle to get guidance from Python through these channelers who would speak to them in a strange voice. These channelers were demon-possessed, as we know. <laughs> 
um, which is how they were able to speak forth things which they couldn't otherwise have known. Such was the case with this girl at Philippi, whose masters charged people money to come get guidance from her. So we know this girl was just being used by these men. You know, she was actually tormented. And, um, you know, she was pretty much enslaved to them because she wasn't set free from that demonic spirit and they were just making money off of her. Um, and this was in Philippi. So Acts 16, 16 through 18. These, um, we know the demon-possessed girl starts to follow Paul and his team and, and she says, where the demon says, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And oftentimes we think, what was wrong with that? She was saying the truth and in a way she's like promoting them and bringing attention. But you would think that would kind of be like the wrong attention, right? If you're like, maybe we're at an outreach and we're like, hey, come to City Terrace. And there's so many possessed, maybe saying, yeah, come to City Terrace. This party will freak people out. Like what? Like that's not the good publicity, I guess you could say. So in a way it was kind of, mocking or making people think like wait what's the truth are these guys good or bad because the spirit is you know and but um jm boy says the greatest danger to the church is when satanic agents false teachers tell the truth for that is when they are the most deceptive the key to being a good false teacher is to tell as much of the truth as possible and act 16 through 18 uh, 16 18 paul didn't just cast out the demon because of the issue of truth God wanted this girl to be set free. So it wasn't that he was annoyed or kind of thing like, oh, he's annoyed, you know, but it wasn't the girl he thought like, poor girl, because it was for a few days actually this kept happening. And, you know, anybody would want that girl to be set free. So so they set her free, and we know that they, that's when they dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace. Um, and I'm going to backtrack before we continue on. I wanted to hit on the false teachers. It's interesting because um, I was just talking about this last week. Um, I think it was, it was probably about a week ago or so, maybe two weeks ago, a week and a half ago. Um, me and Angel had an incident happen. We went to the, my husband is Angel, a pastor here. We went to the Brea Mall. It's funny because we've been living there. We're saying, wow, what a divine appointment. Because we've been living there for more than a year. And a lot of people travel just to go to that mall. And we've never been to the mall. <laughs> and um, yeah, we just went. We say how God guides our steps. Um, as the word says, uh, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. So he just works in the super, he works in the natural, he works supernaturally in the natural, just by our desires. God knows everything, you know, we're his children, just like we know what our child likes and doesn't like, what flavor they like, what food they don't like. Like, if I see Evelyn, she likes Sprite, and then when we eat certain sodas, her daughter, she's like, no, I like Sprite. You know, we know these things, we start to catch on. So how much more God knows everything about us, and he just used that desire. It was actually after church, I think. It was a Saturday or something. No, it was a Saturday. So um, we were burning errands. We were tired, as always, from the week. And um, I was like, hey, we should go redeem our free pretzel. Because we've been having a free pretzel, two free pretzels from Wetzel's Pretzels for like almost a year now. We just never redeemed it. I was like, it's going to expire. We should just go now. Even though we're tired, it was like, okay. He was all sleeping. And we're like, let's just go real quick. Because the last time we attempted to go, this was like last year, it was closed because of the COVID hours. You know, they closed earlier and whatnot. So we just went, you know, really quick. And then he was like, oh, let me go look for pants. And we're just walking around really quick. And then we saw people like evangelizing, like inside the mall. And he was encouraged. I was like, wow, look, like they're evangelizing. He was kind of peeking, like, let's see, like, what they're talking about. You know, they had, it, he saw Jesus or something. So we're like, oh, okay, they're probably Christian, you know, whatever. And, you know, they were dressed nice and everything. And then when we leave, um, there's more of them outside of the entrance. Um, they're outside of the mall, like a bunch of them in each corner. They're pamphlets. And then <laughs> it's funny because I was like, oh, nobody's going to approach Angel. Sometimes we joke around. They don't know how nice he is, just the way he looks on the outside. You know, if you're like a frail old woman, like, you know, be like, oh, this guy, I'm not going to approach this guy, you know? But they were bold. There were two older ladies and they approached us and they were like, hey, so we give that to them. They were pretty bold. And they were like, hey, you know, and, and right away their pamphlet said, God the mother. And I thought it was a joke. I was like, oh, maybe they're trying to combat like the lies and say, because she was like, hey, have you heard of God the mother? And we're like, at first, we're going to say, like, oh, no, but we're like, actually, this is interesting. We need to hear this, you know, let's see what they say. So we're kind of, like, in disguise. They have no idea. He's a pastor, you know, that teaches the Bible. They probably thought he's just, like, you know, we're like, oh, we try to act like, okay, let's see what they have to say. And, yeah, and it was just crazy. <laughs> Their pamphlets were, like, all wrong. And we're listening. We're like, okay. We're like, wait, whoa. And then, like, we kind of started correcting her. But, you know, in love. And um, it's funny because um, he was like, oh, yeah, let me see that pamphlet. Because she was like, look, look. And it has... A lot of cults, they do that. They take verses out of the Bible and 
uh, misinterpret. And I always say the biggest rule is the Bible has to back up the Bible. If you know a book, um, it's funny because at the time I was working at a library, <laughs> many books, um, or any children's book, any book you're reading for school, there's always a theme. You know that they always, the teacher grades you what's the theme of the book, and it's something good to think of too when you're studying the Bible, each book, what's the theme, um, which I'm going to get into what the theme for Philippians is. It's actually joy. Um, so they, you know, take out a few verses here and there, and it looks like, oh, they know the Bible, you know, but you have to take the Bible as a whole. So they were picking verses here and there, and of course, not everybody knows the Bible, sadly. Not a lot of people are blessed to be in a Bible-teaching church. I wasn't for most of my life, and that's when I fell away, and I came back to the Lord. Thanks to my mom. I was praying for a long time, and um, so people could easily be, be deceived, even the people in there. So um, I think the first verse, they were saying, like, we were in heaven before, which is something false, you know, we know the Bible says, you know, God knew us before we were born, but we were never in heaven, so, but they used the verse from Isaiah, and right away, my husband was like, okay, when it was his turn to talk, he's like, okay, he's like, that verse is talking about Satan, this verse, and he just like, boom, 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 and she was like, and then she's like, no, no, but God the mother, or something like that, and then at one point, she like, took the tablet from him, and she was like, finally, she's like, give it to me, <laughs> so it was kind of funny, and I was like, wait, if like, they want us to know, why are they hiding it from us, you know, and it was kind of, it was funny. She was like, no. He's like, no, I want it. I, I want it. <laughs> he wanted to show people. She's like, no. She was trying to hide it. And it's like, what? Like, you are you know it's a lie now. Why are you teaching it? But just funny, in the class we were in, um, Lee was in that class, and my husband took it a long time ago in Bible college. I recently took cults. We were in a cults and apologetics class, and we had to interview somebody from a different religion, not to argue with them. We were just simply asking genuine questions, like, what do you think? It was not... Uh, combating the religion whatsoever. We're just asking them genuine questions. What do you believe about this? This. So it wasn't to debate. We were just writing down their answers and we we're going to turn it in. The last question, though, was very, which reminded me of this situation. The last question is pretty deep that we had to ask in that interview that says, if you ever found out your religion was a lie or false, would you still follow that religion? So most people will be like, yeah, like, of course, I want to know the truth. But some people you know, they're just so stuck in it that they just won't leave even if they found out the truth. And sadly, um, cults has uh, that tie, like we know the Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, like you lose everything. You lose your family if they excommunicate you. So some people, even if they know, like they just can't leave. So um, so yeah, so it was interesting. But um, but yeah, so that's something I was saying, oh, the, the truth, because they were saying some truth from the Bible. And, um, you know, anybody would think, oh, that sounds right. That sounds right. So that's what's scary about cults because they use the Bible. And any other religion, you'll be like, oh, this is way different from what I believe. Like, you know, most people, like, just, they know they believe in God or in Jesus. But, yeah, you have to be careful. So after that, <laughs> he went to go talk to more of them. And then, and the story is we were going, we were going to go approach them. And then we saw them talking to this one guy. And he's like, I have to go back. I have to go back. And we were already leaving. But, you know, it's that in us, you know, we care about people's souls, not to argue or, you know, and, and we started talking to him, and it's pretty interesting because we saw the difference. Those people were kind of more like, try to get you to go to their church or try to get you to their religion, and you could tell the difference, and I think he sensed that. Like, we cared about his soul. Like, we weren't asking about a church. We weren't asking about, like, he actually started opening up with what things he was dealing with, and, and he even told us, like, I knew. Like, he said he grew up. He was from Chicago. He just got out of the military. He was a young guy. He said he just... um he grew up, uh, his grandma used to take him to Baptist church, so he had some kind of Bible, you know, like he remembers, and he's trying to get back with the Lord, he's been praying, seeking God, so everything he saw is a sign, he's like, I was literally just praying for a sign, and these people start talking to me about God, so, you know, he's probably like, this is a sign, he's like, but then you guys came, and I was like, whoa, what's going on, but he said he knew in the back of his mind, he knew, he's like, I knew that wasn't right, like, even though, like, people don't, might not know the whole Bible, we have the Holy Spirit that gives us that discernment. And that was cool that he said he just knew like something was off, but he couldn't, he didn't know. And it was really awesome. And end of story is we got really close to him. He exchanged numbers and he actually went to uh, Cabbage Chapel Golden Springs the next day and he loved it. And we're going to be meeting up with him. And, and it was really cool. So he's like, you guys saved me. You guys saved me. <laughs> but yeah, so I think it's, uh, it's what's deceptive is when there's a lot of truth. And that's what I told him. It's deceptive because a half truth is still a lie. So you have to be really careful with that. So that's kind of a good example of this story of the demon-possessed girl. So we know once they cast the demon out, they got in trouble. Those guys that owned her, they lost their way of living. You know, they made, off, made a lot of money off of her. So um, Acts 16, 20 through 21, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans to receive or observe. Look at this, like, 
yeah, they had Greek mythology, they worshiped the Roman gods and all these pagan crazy, crazy practices. This was just a snippet of it. There's so much more dark stuff that they did, really crazy stuff. And um, so, yeah, that must be rare. Like, why are these Jews here? You know, they're not used to having Jews, like we said, in this city. So um, they didn't like that they were teaching this um, other thing, and which they really weren't, but they were just mad that they, they casted the demon out of the girl and they lost their way of living. But anyway, so they pretty much made, got them in trouble. Um, verse 22, they were beaten with rods. Um, it's funny because we just think, oh, okay, they got a beating with a stick or whatever, but rods actually means it's a bundle of branches with sharp objects inside. Um, then also, they were, they, so they were beat with many stripes. Their feet were in the stocks. And, you know, stocks, um, it, it not only held them, but it was a torture device that stretched their arms and legs to the furthest extremity. Sometimes we think we see those pictures of back then, that's actually the English stocks. They're just like, you know, they just hold them like this, but it wasn't like that. The Roman stocks actually had a series of holes that extended a person's arms and legs to the farthest possible extreme, and then they locked them into that position. So um, that could cause hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging, internal injuries, smashed vertebrae, crushed ribs. Um, it could even cause death. So imagine that they went through this beatings and then they were put in the stocks, but they were in the Philippian jail and so we know, that's what we know. This is all the background to this book. Paul knew about joy in the midst of suffering. So we know that they worshiped at night. That's when Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So they didn't sing to get free. Um, you know, when we worship God, it's because we're going through a trial. We don't worship. I mean, we do expect God's going to do something. But they weren't thinking in that moment, if we sing, God's going to bring a big earthquake and set us free. You know, we would never think that. We think God's going to get us, maybe set us free somehow, maybe 10 years from now. We don't know. They were just singing because they were free. On the inside, they knew they were free. So Acts 16, 26 through 28, an earthquake opened the prison doors, but Paul and Silas didn't try to escape. They stopped the prison keeper from taking his life because we know um, if the prisoners escaped, the guards, um, they would be killed because they were in charge of those prisoners. So the, the keeper was trying to take his own life, and they told him, no, you know, don't do that. We're all here. They, again, they cared about people's souls. They could have run away. You would think if we got broken out of jail, we would take it, right? It would be like, oh, maybe this is the Lord. This is the Lord setting us free. But no, they stayed behind, and they cared about um, his soul. And so because they knew he wasn't saved, but they were. And um, so that's when the jailer said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, so their wounds, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God and all his household. So this is how the church at Philippi began. So that's pretty amazing. We have Lydia and then this jailer. So we sometimes think, like, why is this happening to us? You know, they were innocent, but they were beaten, they were put in jail, but it was for a, a bigger purpose. Sometimes we don't see it right away, the reason. But who would have known that this would have been the birth of a church plant there, and then we wouldn't have had the book of Philippians. It just made me think, like, wow, and this book has ministered to so many of us and has so many awesome truths, and it's just awesome. And um, the Philippians, were the church, were always generous to Paul, and they always sent him financial gifts, even though they were poor. He thanked them in this letter for their fourth gift in Philippians. So they were, they were helping Paul a lot. Acts 20. Um, Paul visited at Philippi twice on his third missionary journey. That was 53 to 57 AD. Paul wrote Philippians. So this is kind of where the, not controversy, but there's different views on this. Paul wrote the Philippians, um, the letter to the Philippians during his first Roman imprisonment, which was 60 to 62 AD. But some believe it was his second and last Roman imprisonment, which we know he wrote um, 2 Timothy right before he was going to be beheaded. Um, but there's more evidence for the first. And we're going to see as we get into it, um, he knows that he's going to see them again. And um, So there was two in Roman imprisonment. He was in prison many times, maybe about five or six times total, they believe. But the Roman imprisonment, that was the last two right before he was going to be killed by Caesar Nero. And... Um, so Acts 28, 16, verse 16 and 30. Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the Roman soldier who guarded him. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house. So a lot of times people say, 
or they say that he was in a dungeon and that was his second imprisonment. So the first one, it sounds like, oh, the first one we mentioned in Philippians, that was horrible, right? The torture and the, but this one, he actually, imagine being on house arrest, having so much favor where you were on house arrest in your own rented house. Yes, he was guarded at all times. He had a soldier chained to him, but um, he was able to have visitors. And so he was pretty comfortable. And, um, and it made me think maybe even the financial gifts they said, maybe that was paying for his rent, who knows, <laughs> for his house. And, um, but yeah, so that's, that's more believed where he wrote uh, Philippians was when he was two whole years there. And then that's when uh, Caesar Nero was emperor. Um, he, we know that he was, if you don't know about him already, he was really horrible. All the Caesars were, but Nero was one of the most horrible that you would think he was part of the Antichrist. If I was in the early church, I would think, man, God, this is like the worst persecution ever. Like for sure Jesus is coming back because they believed he was going to come back any day. And that's what Jesus said to live as if he's coming tomorrow. So he was really a really horrible man. Um, but there was a second wave, a more, a next wave of more harsh persecution. So that first time Paul was in prison, that's why it wasn't too bad. But all of a sudden it got worse. He changed his mind and he just hated Christians. He hated Christians and they were being arrested. They were being killed. They, he was lighting them on fire in his backyard. He would fill them with tar and um, use them. He would joke around and use them as nightlights and ride around naked in his horse in his backyard and light them on fire and just horrible, horrible things, and they said he was probably demon-possessed. He would hear voices, and he was just cra a crazy man, and um, really harsh. So the second time is the second time Paul got arrested again during that, that next wave, and that's when he got beheaded around 67 AD, but some say it was between 65 to 68 AD. But that was the same wave that Peter, um, the apostle, was also killed. So they were killed around the same time because of that a wave of persecution. Um, but it is said that Paul couldn't be crucified. We know Peter was crucified upside down. He said he wasn't worthy to be um, to die like the Lord. But it's interesting because Paul couldn't be crucified because he was a Roman citizen. So that's why they beheaded him. It's still bad, but it's interesting. I, I didn't know that. So um, we know Nero then killed himself either the same year or the next. So he ended up killing himself. Um, so now on to Philippians. So that's our intro kind of backstory of about Philippi, who this letter is written to the church there. So the three themes is going to be joy, unity, and God. So throughout this, it's only four chapters. We're not going to obviously get into the whole thing today, but um, it's only four chapters in Philippians. You could turn there, but that's the theme we see throughout the book. So Philippians is all about joy. Um, we know Paul's in prison, so it's pretty interesting that it's about joy. So it's really comforting for us, whatever we're going through, to take this from Paul and knowing his circumstance, the background I just read and, and how he could have joy. He's going to teach us how to have that joy in Christ. Um, so joy is mentioned four times. The word rejoice is mentioned 10 times. The word glad is mentioned two times. So it's about 16 references to joy. Um, it's also all about unity, um, but also about humility, which you're going to see in chapter two, which is one of my favorite chapters. Philippians is about God. So out of the total 104 verses in the book of Philippians, there's 51 references to God. Um, there's a quote by Charles Erdman. says, Philippians is a hymn of joy. I like that because how we said when they were in the Philippine jail back then. Um, and the music is more appealing because its accompaniment sounds the notes of privation and loneliness and poverty and pain. The lines are penned by Paul as a prisoner. They are designed to express his gratitude to the friends whose gift has brought some relief. But more than that, they reveal his utter dependency and desire for Jesus. The service of Christ is the very sphere of Paul's life. The spirit of Christ, the temper of his mind, the perfection of Christ, the goal of his effort. Which we're going to see in chapter 3 uh, that Christ is his goal. And the power of Christ, the secret of his triumph, Paul's artless unfolding of difficult personal experience points every reader to the one pathway of peace and strength and unfailing gladness. And this is my favorite part of this quote. For in Philippians, we are taught how we can sing songs in the middle of the darkest night. Happiness versus joy. We know the difference. Um, the world gives happiness, and we know that's temporary. Um, me and the world, you know, was either in relationships, friends, um, and all those 
things didn't last. It was all worldly. And, you know, once that's taken away, we get depressed, we get frustrated, and it's only temporary. So joy is something only God could give. True, lasting joy that we know it's a spring that never runs dry. And we're going to see how we can find that in Jesus if we don't have that already. And there was an article in a magazine that says um, Americans feel bad and or why are we so sad yet we have it so good? And I think of, of Americans um, only because I've traveled to many countries and um, third world countries, and we have so much here, and it makes me feel guilty every time just seeing. But they're so they're so happy. They're so happy. Not that they don't go through depression, because I've met people they battle with the same things we do. It's just different. Um, you know, their sin is everywhere. They battle through anxiety, different things. But we know Americans, um, especially the next generation, and I myself included deal with a lot of anxiety, depression, yet we have it so good here. But um, but yeah, so that's happiness. That's happiness is, is fleeting. It's fleeting, and that's what depresses us. So someone who can truly find their joy in the Lord, and which a lot of them do in those other countries because um, they go starving maybe for days, you know, they have trust in the Lord, and, and they have that close relationship with the Lord. And and we can have that too if we don't. Not that we're not going to struggle with those things because, like I said, I struggle with those things still. But um, we have to remember to not put our, our trust in those temporary things. Um, even people. People, our family, anything. But um, so, so, yeah. So joy is not based on circumstances, which happiness is, which can be changed all the time. <laughs> As we know in this world, especially, is changing so quickly. Um, so joy, I like that the J, think of it standing for Jesus, O, other, because we're going to see when Paul prays for them, Y is you, so ourselves. So we know it's always God first, others, then ourselves, as Jesus said, to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's easier said than done, but, um, you know, as we abide with Jesus, he gives us the strength and he teaches us. But, um, so now getting into Philippians, verse one, um, verse one, so we're going to here. So, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to stop there. Um, verse 1, as I mentioned last month, I don't know if you guys remember, um, I don't even think that was in my notes, but the Lord really wanted me to share that about how we all have our part in the body. Um, I said, even the simplest thing, you take out the trash. If you feel like, well, I'm not the pastor up there teaching or I'm not doing worship, I'm not doing this. We're all equally as important. And the Bible teaches that all the different gifts of the spirit, whether you know what they are or you don't know, just doing your part, any of the slightest thing, it, we all work together. Because without it, like I said, we see the difference. We're like, oh, no, they're not here. And like everyone, it's, it's really significant, whether you think it is or not. And um, so verse 1, as Paul was addressing the saints, and the bishops and deacons. I like that Chuck Smith actually referred to that as well and was talking about the different um, just callings and how God just desires for us to, to be faithful. As um, one of the verses since last month was topical, I, I mentioned um, to do things all, to do things heartily as unto the Lord and not to man, because we know every word comes from the Lord. So that could be in your workplace, in your job. You know, it, things change when we realize that our boss is God and once we have that attitude, things totally change. We think, oh, we're just doing it. You know, maybe we get worn out, just weary, just our everyday lives, going to work, going to work, or maybe we don't like our bosses. But it changes once we, we apply that and we see that. And, and it says not for eye service. Like you might see the other people, maybe they don't know the Lord. They see the boss walking around and they're always slacking off and maybe they just act like they're working. But you know you work hard and you're just doing what you usually do. But that's why it says, just do it as you know God is always watching you. You're doing it unto the Lord, and that changes everything. Maybe people can't make it to church. They want to be there, but they just work so much. Um, as long as you're faithful where God has you, it's you're not going to be, I mean, you're not going to have the blessings of sitting in the Bible, the nuggets you get, but you're not going to be any more, any more or less loved than God loves them or blessed because God has you in a certain season. It could maybe even mean being a mom, being a wife, whatever it is. Maybe you're in a hard season and you just can't do the things you would want to do. But all God desires is for us to be faithful. We know the parable of the talents um, that Jesus talks about. 
Um, and then later it mentions, well done, my good and faithful servant. So um, some, the masters, the story that Jesus gives, he gave some more talents than the others. Maybe one just had one, the other one had five, but the other ones were afraid and they didn't use it. It says they buried it. Some maybe they were just lazy. They just didn't do anything with it. And maybe the one that had one and, you know, he was more faithful. And it says that that's our goal. We just want God to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That you were faithful in the little and that he's going to make us um, uh, oversee more. And it's an awesome reward to have that, you know, you don't have to compare what others are doing or maybe it's just not possible in our schedules. So I really like that. That It doesn't mean the bishops were more important than the deacons. So he says to all the saints. Though he does address the leaders, so there's um, they are held to a higher standard. But it doesn't mean that they're any more special. So he also addresses Timothy in verse 1 to his companion, um, which we know uh, Timothy wrote a lot of the letters for him. Um, it is said that Paul started to be, have blind a little bit in his eyes or have issues, so he would have Timothy write for him. Uh, we know that he was, I don't know if you guys heard that quote that says to always have a Paul in your life and a Timothy, so always look to have somebody you could pour into. Even if you've just been saved for like a month, they say there's always somebody you could just, even if you just know John 3.16, you know, Jesus loves you, he died for you. Um, there's always somebody who knows less than you. So it's good to always pour into somebody. It doesn't matter. So don't think too hard on yourself or what you know or you do not know. But um, always share. And uh, Timothy was the one Paul poured into. So he was like his assistant. And we're going to see later in Philippians, he said that there's nobody more like-minded than him. So um, he was an awesome, somebody he could trust. He would send him on errands or maybe to go... Uh, speak to the churches, even he was a pastor uh, at Ephesus, and um, yeah, so he's the one that he introduces at the beginning of this letter, so Timothy is an awesome character we're going to learn more about later, so verse 3, thankfulness and prayer, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that's the verse I gave Lee, because I know we were going to cover that tonight. So I was like, okay, let's stick to the theme. And I like her story, and it just, it's crazy, because I didn't even think about it. I knew it was going to tie with this, but it tied more than I even thought. <laughs> so it was really awesome. That's the Lord. And um, so I wanted to quickly cover, oh, actually, I, I didn't mention this before, but you're going to see in a lot of the epistles, they say, they open up with grace to you and peace from God. And we know that we can't have the we can't have true peace without first experiencing God's grace and salvation. Um, so the reason why I kind of took a long time talking about cults is because there's going to be some more references. Um, cults actually make you feel restless that you have to do work, um, even if it seems Christian. There could be some quote unquote Christian that seem Christian, but they're um, they're hitting on works and the works for salvation. And we know that we're saved by grace. Just as I mentioned before, maybe there's people that want to go to church, want to serve. It's encouraged, and that's what God commands us to do. But sometimes, you know, you're just not in that season. And it doesn't mean that um, you're not going to go to heaven. Um, so it's, some, it's possible for someone to be saved and never do works. But it is a natural overflow. So we know the thief on the cross, obviously, he, wasn't, he didn't have time to go do works. He was about to die. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. But he was still saved, and maybe there's other people who just physically maybe can't get out of bed. They're still saved. Um, but we know James 2, 17 to 18 says, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So it goes both ways. If you truly are saved, it's not that you feel pressured or forced. It should never be like that. Otherwise, we're going to know it's some, something's not right or you're being deceived. You're not walking fully in grace. Um, one of my favorite books, uh, if you guys haven't read it, it's an easy book to read. All of Chuck Smith's books are easy. It's called Why Grace Changes Everything. And it really changes everything <laughs> once you read that book. Um, it talks about that grace versus works and bearing fruit and how just something natural. You don't have to force it. You don't have to try if you're truly saved, it's just going to be like a garden. It's growing. It's an overflow. It's not a, I like how he refers, it's not a factory where they're a manufacturer was just producing, producing. It's like fake, you know, it's robotic. 
and um, it's more like a garden. So God is just growing us, and we all grow at different pace. I don't know if you know avocados take like 15 years to grow on a tree. There's different other plants, maybe um, poppies grow quicker. So yeah, we're all different, and um, and God works with us. And um, so yeah, so it should be a balance. It should be a natural overflow. So not that you're having to do these things, but when you're as uh, Paul says in another epistle, it is the love of Christ that constrains constrains us so it's like an overflow we just love people so much that you can't help it you can't help to do the outreach you can't help to um, pray with them so it, it is out of love it's not by um, pressure or anything so yeah so you can't have God's peace without experiencing his grace so the peace is true like I said the true joy and not happiness of the world so there's true peace once we have our souls are at rest we know that the Bible says in Ephesians that we were at enmity with God so we were enemies of God before we knew him in our minds. And he knows everything, our hearts, our thoughts. And um, because we weren't repentant, we're never going to be perfect. But because we weren't repentant, we weren't even, either we were willfully sinning or we didn't even think about God. I know for the most part, I just wouldn't even think about God. We're so lost. Um, we were at war with God. So until we experience salvation and grace, that's when we can have true peace. We're not at war anymore. I think there's a song that you're these days do the war is over <laughs> it reminds me of that but that's all talking about sin it's over it is finished but yes yeah, so moving on um oh quickly about the assurance of salvation i wanted to talk quickly about um galatians which paul also wrote it's also about uh, legalism there was a group called the judaizers um kind of cultish and actually you see a lot of that today how he said cults are just there's Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. They're just like a copy of this one, and they just twist it a little bit. But um, there was already false uh, prophets and teachers back in the day. People think, oh, they're, they're going to come hundreds of years later. But no, we see they were against John the Beloved, Paul the Apostle. There was always, they're always already fighting against false teachers that already arose right after Jesus died. So they were always um, clarifying the truth to the churches. So Galatians, in Galatians, the whole... Uh, epistle was written for that it was talking about um, the law not having these people make you feel guilty and it talked about grace um, grace and the power of the holy spirit walking in the spirit so um the judaizers um slash any cult you could fit into this category they always want to say you need jesus for salvation and blank you can fill in the blank with whatever that might be or jesus and you need this many hours of church attendance or this many hours of evangelizing um it was interesting that quote that i was talking about earlier they they didn't tell us all of that but when we looked it up after it was really crazy so um they said that you don't get saved until jesus second coming so it was really weird so it's jesus and see they're adding to the gospel it's a different gospel and that's where we get our infamous um verse that we should all learn uh it's in galatians chapter one i want to say verse six or nine where paul says um if we or any other uh, angel preach, you, preach to you a different gospel, um, let him be accursed, which means anathema in the Greek, which is like down to the lowest depths of hell, the, the harshest place of hell. So even if an angel, which we know fallen angels preach um, other religions, and um, so even possibly, even if we change our mind and start telling you something else, he was like, don't believe it. And he repeats it again, um, just to really emphasize so that's a really good verse to know um, and will help you detect, okay, this isn't lining up to the gospel that we know the Bible says. So it's good to know your Bible. It's good to know, uh, listen to good theologically sound studies because there are so many crazy things out there. Um, but like I said, the Holy Spirit gives us discernment. Um, and pray, pray for discernment. There's nothing wrong with that. God is desiring to give us that discernment to be able to know truth. And that's something what the young man said. He's like, I always pray for truth and to be shielded from lies. And so he was just amazed to see how everything happened. <laughs> God always honors our prayers. Um, so we can have confidence and knowledge of who he is and what the Bible says and our relationship with him. And that's how we won't fall into cults. Um, so it's good to study your Bible. Um, sadly, I have seen a lot of people that were solid Bible believers that they still got pulled away. Now they're in crazy cults. And I just wonder how did that even happen? So, um, but I do believe God could bring them out, you know, by our prayers and God will open their eyes. And that's why it's good to be studied up because these people, they're really studied up and they're very convincing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so don't let people make you feel guilty. So the Jesus and, um, 
also did Jesus in circumcision. This is what the Judaizers were saying. Keeping the law, the Sabbath, the feast. Um, these people were actually talking about that. They were saying about the Sabbath, and we had to keep the Passover. And they weren't even Jews, so it was really weird. And um, yeah, so you, it, Paul wrote that to say, don't make people make you feel guilty because of that. They, they worship on other days. He said, no, any day um, we worship the Lord every day. So, um, so yeah, so we could have that, that assurance of our salvation. A lot of um, cults or other false religions, sadly, they don't have that assurance of salvation. Um, they could be so confident in their religion, but when you talk to them, they don't know when they die if they're going to go to heaven or not. They just hope that they did enough good deeds to make it to heaven, or they might even, um, uh, they see martyrdom as the ultimate, maybe they will get into heaven. So it's sad that they don't have that assurance that the Bible gives us. So it's good to be assured so we don't get tied up into this crazy, our mind already plays tricks on us as it is in the devil, so we don't have to get worked up in whether we're saved or not saved. But yeah, so I'm going to talk about verse 6, about he who has begun a good work. Um, the word work in the Greek is um, ergon, which the definition in biblical usage means business, employment, that which anyone is occupied, that which one undertakes to do, enterprise, undertaking, any product, whatever, anything accomplished by hand, art, industry, or mind. And it's an act, a deed, or something that's done. So it could be a good or a bad thing. So that word work, it could be a positive thing or it could be a bad word. But I love how Paul specifies good. He says, he who has begun a good work. So we know that um, God is good and it's a good work that he begins um, where the people fall away, they come back. Or it could be maybe when they're a baby, when they're toddlers, and then somehow the Lord brings them back. Or it's even a new work. Maybe they don't know about the Lord till way later. It's like regardless, it's it's a good work. And the world tries to tell us now nowadays, you know, that Christianity is is bad and everything about it is bad, and it's for people who aren't smart, you know, to believe in the God. But um, yeah, so it's a good work, and um, I love that because we often, I know, speaking for myself. Begin projects we don't finish, whether it's art projects, crafts, or whatever we want to do. I want to do this, I want to do that. And then, you know, life gets busy or whatever, and we don't finish. So I love that God doesn't do that. So we are pictures and workmanships of grace. Um, the Bible also tells us, I believe in Ephesians, uh, the word poema, which means we're like his poem. So think of it as art, as that definition tells us. We're his trophies of grace. It also talks about um, it's more fulfilling than us being finished already. Uh, when we were first created. So just imagine God created us and we're born and boom, we're finished already. It's like, there's no excitement in that. I mean, ideally we were created to be perfect, but we know that the Bible says in First uh, Peter that um, angels desire to look into this grace. They're amazed and it's all, at the end of the day, it's all for God's glory. Whatever the enemy meant for evil, God turns it around for good. And he came in the fall in the Garden of Eden, but God, he's creating workmanship and masterpieces out of us. And like we mentioned about the plants, some grow quicker than others. You know, it takes time. It takes time where there's season of suffering or we walk away, whatever it may be. We're only prolonging that work, but he never leaves us or he never forsakes us. So um, the word complete from that same verse in the King James Version, it says performed. So um, it could be another word you could see it as. He performs it. So he doesn't just leave us like that. He never leaves us or forsakes us. Even when we mess up time and time again. He doesn't give up on us. We could keep resisting and walk away. Um, like I said, we don't like to use that word, lose your salvation, but we could forfeit it as salvation is a free gift. Somebody could reject that gift or just never pick it up and, you know, they want nothing to do with it. Um, maybe even think about uh, family, what do you say, like family, I want to say family beefs. <laughs> I can't think of a word right now. Um, say maybe a brother doesn't talk to a sister, or a daughter doesn't talk to her father anymore. You know, if he's going to keep buying her gifts, she's going to want nothing to do with that. So think of it like that. If somebody doesn't want nothing to do with it, you know, they have the choice. So um, so God's faithful to complete it, but it's also our part if um, we could choose to keep resisting that for the rest of our lives or just let him work. But um, we know that he works hard. Well, he doesn't work hard because God doesn't get tired, but he does everything he can to try to get us back. And we know it's his love that leads us to repentance, as Romans 5 says. Um, but he just 
um, there's a verse in Corinthians that talks about church discipline. Uh, the person that was in sin in the church that was sleeping with his stepmother that the church wasn't addressing. Um, Paul said he had the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to say, um, to kick them out of church. So church discipline means um, if he says don't eat with them, and that's something always hard to do is says don't, but the reason behind it is because you have to let the enemy work in his life. So it's kind of like God lets go and be like, okay, this is what you want. It's kind of like tough love with a child, you know, if they don't want to live under your rules, you just, it hurts, but you have to let them go and it's tough love. But the point is so they come back because they see what, it, what it's like, like the prodigal son. They thought they wanted that, but it ended up being worse, so they come back to the father's house. So um, we know that um, God, he doesn't just leave us like that. He, he uses that discipline to purposely bring us back because he knows that, that we're going to see that we were better off with him, um, which reminds us, um, and we know that's God's love, is agape love, because honestly, when I think of it and ourselves, and that's why we're called to, to be like him, we probably would give up on people a long time ago. Um, say maybe even a husband that just keeps cheating repeatedly. Maybe even after the first time, um, we know that we don't, our love does run out. Our love is weak, and God calls us to love like him. His agape love is he, he forgives again and again, and he's willing that none shall perish, and he's so patient with us, and nothing could stop him from loving us. As we know in Romans 8 says, nothing can separate us from his love. But um, Hosea, the book of Hosea, is a good demonstration of that. I'm going to finish here. Um, so Hosea 1, um, that's one of the minor prophets, but you'll see the verses up there. Um, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Hosea. He was a prophet. Um, God called him in the Old Testament. So a lot of the times when God called prophets in the Old Testament, he will say he had them do crazy things that may have not made sense. But the purpose of it was to be like a physical demonstration. It kind of reminds me of even children's ministry. You know, when you're trying to teach something, we have somebody get it. Or maybe even in a play, it's kind of more effective when they see it, you know? Like me sometimes or when I get trained for a job, um, I guess everybody's different. Some people are more hands-on. And if I see them do it, you kind of remember, oh, this is where I'm supposed to go. But then somebody just tells you quickly, turn this way, turn that way. Or you have to click here, click here. Okay, bye. And they leave you at your desk. Like you kind of remember more when they walk you through it, you know, physically. You, you see it. So um, God would use that, the prophets for that reason, to try to communicate uh, a spiritual truth because a lot of, they were far from God and they wouldn't listen. So maybe if they would physically see, he paints a picture through a person, they're like, oh, that's what that means. And it kind of grabs their attention more. So he called Hosea to marry a prostitute for the most part because um, Israel was being unfaithful to God. So imagine being the, the prophet that had to marry a prostitute and have a hard life. <laughs> And just love her and love her, regardless that she kept cheating. Um, so yeah, he called her for this reason. He called him to do that for this reason. Um, demonstration of how I said he keeps um, he keeps reaching out. The Bible says that his arm is still extended out. It's in, still extended out, and he keeps giving us chances. And he's just there waiting. But it's us. Um, so verse two in Hosea chapter one says, "When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea." Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. Um, and we know in those, I'm going to skip down to verse 9, but pretty much what happened between verse 2 and verse 9 is he did marry um, the prostitute. They had three children, and the first two children's names were named after, God told them what to name them. Uh, they were named after judgments of God. Um, this is at this point, but later she has more kids from other people. But these were Hosea's kids, the first three. Um, she, uh, the name, the, their names meant judgments that God was going to do and him not showing mercy, him that he wasn't going to show mercy to them. So they're pretty harsh names. So you would think if you were Israel, the children of Israel, the people living at the time, you'll be like, oh, man, God's really not going to show us any mercy if this is what he's showing us to this prophet. But when the third child was born, um, verse 9 says, then God said, Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So that's pretty heavy, too, because we know God's covenant with Abraham and um, later with Moses, because this is way later in the Old Testament. Um, he had a covenant with Israel that he was never going to leave them or forsake them, that they're his people. That's why he established them. So imagine hearing all this, and that should get their attention, right? Like, wow, God really, he, his, he's... His wrath, you know, is going to be shown against us, his, his judgments, because they went after other gods. Um, he said that he provided all their needs, and they went around and 
um, sacrifice that to the false gods in the temples, their gold that he gave them, their food, everything that he blessed them with, they would turn around and sent it to their other lovers. So that's why he said to marry a prostitute, she would go to her other lovers. Um, so the next verse, chapter, I'm sorry, verse 10, Hosea 1.10. But right after he says that about that third child, he speaks about restoration. So right after he says to name that child, um, you are not my people and I will not be your God. He says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which we know is the covenant with Abraham, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So that's a beautiful promise that he takes them back. He's in, he tells them that they're still his sons. So, um, yeah, so we'll end there. <laughs> we didn't get too far. We're going to go in depth. We had a long introduction, but um, I'm excited. We're going to see what, um, now that we have a good backstory to Philippians, and we're going to see how it's all about joy in the midst of suffering. We know that Paul's in prison right now. Um, though he was in the rented house, but um, still he went through heavy seasons. And even then, he was there for a few years. Um, so, yeah, we're going to get into how he prays for people. And that's what we're going to cover next. Um, so if you're going through something right now, and maybe you're just in the season of waiting, and waiting sucks. <laughs> um, whether you're suffering, you're in pain, you don't know how to get out of it, um, we could... You could read ahead if you want to read Philippians, and you could see um, how Paul prays for the church there at Philippi. So whenever we're in those chains, whether it's a season of waiting, whether it's a sickbed, I think of Sarah, or just whatever we have going on, um, when we pray for others, it, it brings joy. And, and it reminded me of Job when he prayed for his friends. Um, I'm going to cover that verse really quick. So Job 42, 7 through 10. Uh, if you guys are familiar with Job, this is towards the end of the book already. After everything he went through, his friends were not being good comforters. So at the very end, uh, verse 7, it says, And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him, lest I deal with, with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord commanded them. For the Lord had accepted Job. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So I thought, wow, there's something powerful about praying for others in the midst of your sufferings and trials. And that's really hard to do because sometimes we, I know for me and myself, when I'm going through crazy anxiety or depression, you don't want to think about anything. You just want to lock yourself in the room. Um, you try to pray, you try to worship, you try to read. But um, the last thing maybe you're even thinking of is praying for others, others' needs. So it's, it's a promise and something that we see throughout the Bible that um, we push through, and, and God blesses us. God blesses us, and, and though Job went through all that suffering, in the end, you know, after his time of waiting and being tested, the Lord um, restored to him twice as much as he had before, and it was the friends who were wrong, and the whole time he was probably thinking, maybe they're right and I'm wrong, but um, yeah, and so he, even though he was probably still suffering, he called, called him to pray, and he obeyed, and he still prayed, even though he was probably still, I'm sure, still hurting from the loss of his children and so many other things. But, um, yeah, so even if we feel that we're being held back, we're restrained by those chains, and Paul mentions he was in chains. We're going to read later on. Um, like I said, that season of waiting, the sickbed, whatever it is, the timing is perfect in God's eyes. And I like to hear that there's a story or a quote that says he keeps God keeps his hand on the thermostat. So he knows just the right amount of temperature that, that we could endure in the trial. Like he's not going to let us overcook or undercook because if he takes us out too early, we might have to go through it again and test the next testing. But he's there. He's there and he's, he doesn't take his eyes off of us. And he's working in the waiting even when we don't feel it. And he works all things together for good. So except for that, we're going to go ahead and close. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you again, Lord God, just for this time, Lord God, and we just thank you for these truths, Lord God, and in the Bible, Lord God, and Job, and Paul, and just so many, Lord, you, Jesus, you're the ultimate example, as Paul said, to imitate him as he imitates you, Jesus, and 
we know that Paul also says he's being poured out as a drink offering and being poured out for others, Lord God. Sometimes it's not easy as I myself is, is, is just dealing with that right now and growing in that area of my life, Lord God, that we just, um, once we pour ourselves out, Lord God, and put others first, Lord God, it, it makes things easier, Lord God. It takes our eyes off of the trial, Lord God, and we see the purpose behind it, Lord God. You desire to use everything, Lord God, and nothing goes to waste, Lord God. I pray that you strengthen us now, Lord God, that you would spare our Lord, strengthen her, Lord God, strengthen her body, her mind, Lord God, her heart, Lord God, and just um, give us peace, Lord God, and just whatever it is we're going through, Lord God, that um, you do work all things together for good, Lord God, even if we don't know the timing of it, Lord God. May we just place our hope and our trust in you, Lord God, as we sing, Lord God, that song of build my life, Lord God, of putting our trust in you alone, Lord, as Psalm um, either 61 or 62 talks about, Lord God, that our expectation is from you and you alone, Lord God, and to trust in you, our rock and our refuge, Lord God, and not in man, as we know, we study that that is false happiness, Lord God, temporary, Lord God. I pray that we would just have true joy, Lord God, and just be those examples and those lights for people around us, Lord God, so they could see, Lord God, that we're going through all these crazy things, Lord God, but something's different, Lord God. We still have a smile, and we could share and have that open door that it's you, Jesus, and we know that's what it's all about, Lord God, as we're studying, Lord, and we know that where we're going, Lord God, we know we're going to heaven, but they're not, Lord God. If Paul and Silas could have escaped that prison, Lord, but they stayed, Lord God, because they thought of the jailer's soul. And I pray that we would just have that mindset as well, Lord God. We love you. We thank you, Jesus.